Amen. So the theme of 1 Peter is uh, the problem of suffering in the Christian life. There were many Christians um, in Peter's day that were going through difficulties, whether it was because of persecution from the Jews or from unbelievers, people in the world, or whether it were just trials, spiritual things that people were going through, difficulty in their lives, difficulty in their relationships, uh, difficulty in their minds. We, we all know the various things that, uh, that, that are present in the, in the Christian life, and there were many that were uh, very confused. You know, when you think about um, what it means to be the sons and daughters of royalty, one of the things that you don't usually associate with that is pain. You know, usually if you're the son of, or a daughter of a king, you, you eat from a silver spoon. You're insulated from a lot of the problems that other people have. Well, not so in the Christian life. You know, we've been called by him. We belong to him. But yet we experience uh, pain. We go through difficult things. And sometimes it can cause us to question, well, am I really saved? Does God really love me? Uh, if he promises a blessing in my life, then why does my life feel so much like a curse and not at all like a blessing? You know, and, and we wrestle with these things because uh, we, we stand by faith in his word that we're accepted and that we're loved, but yet we're experiencing from time to time things that we don't understand. And so Peter, as a, an apostle, as a pastor, and as a mature believer, he writes these things for us so that we might have some understanding. And they're as true today for us as they were for them uh, in that time then. And so in chapter 1, uh, Peter took in hand to remind these Christians who they were in Christ. And he takes that chapter, his opening words, to basically say to them that suffering in the life of a believer is not a reflection of our standing with him. That just because we're suffering doesn't mean uh, that we don't belong to him in some way. Then in chapter 2, he goes on and he reminds them what Jesus is doing in them through the suffering that they're experiencing. That is that the place of suffering uh, is, is working and being, are being conformed into his image. He called us living stones and that we're being cut and quarried and fashioned in order to uh, occupy a very specific and intentional place in his plan and in his house. And so part of his shaping of our lives is the experience of the sufferings that we're going through. They're serving a purpose uh, as he builds us up and shapes us into what he desires us to be, always measured against the dimensions of the cornerstone, always uh, demonstrated in, in the life of Christ, always precise in what he's doing. But there's a purpose in it. He's doing something through the sufferings. And now as we come into chapter 3, he's going to talk to us about the place of suffering as it relates to our human relationships. And, and there is absolutely a dimension or a dynamic of suffering uh, that we experience at the hand of the people, the other people that are in our lives. Now, if you're a Christian here tonight, every single human relationship that you have and that I have falls under the banner of one of three categories. Uh, either the, your relationship is a marriage relationship, if you're married, that's one of the three categories. The second one is uh, a church relationship, that is a relationship that you have with another believer, or thirdly, a relationship that you have with an unbeliever or someone who is lost. And every single relationship that a Christian has falls under one of those three categories. It's either your spouse, another believer, or an unbeliever. There's no more categories than that. And so what Peter does in this chapter is he takes all three of those human relations and he talks about the various trials that can present themselves uh, in, in those relationships. And then he gives us uh, some, some um, insight into what God is doing through those difficulties. And then he gives us some advice as to how to navigate some of those things. And so if you're married here tonight... Uh, Peter's going to give some counsel to us as to how to navigate in a Christian marriage so as that God's purposes can be uh, obtained in us and also that we might thrive and be blessed in our marriage relationships. Also in the church, you know, we have relationships with other believers 
and there's a protocol as to what those relationships are producing in us and also how we're to conduct ourselves. So Peter talks to us about that. And then also we suffer at the hand of unbelievers. Can anybody say amen? You know, and, and he's going to talk to us about God's purpose in that and why those sufferings are important and what they do, what they produce and what they accomplish. And so that's kind of the outline as we move forward. And so Peter now begins um, to talk to us about our marriage relationships as he opens up the, cha- the cha- uh, chapter. Now, he begins with the word in verse uh, one in chapter three with the word likewise. And that's kind of an odd place to begin a thought, but you can't just start with a likewise without knowing what the likewise is attaching itself to. And so basically what he just finished saying, if you look back with your uh, eyes just a few verses back into chapter 2, is he looks at Jesus as the example of of the, the, the supreme life or the supreme example of a life. And I just want to look at those verses in verse 21 leading up to uh, to see what the likewise is that he's talking about. Notice what he says concerning Jesus back in verse 21 of chapter 2. He says, For even hereunto were you called, that because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that you should follow his steps. That is, that if Jesus uh, suffered while he was on this earth, the servant isn't greater than his Lord, then we should expect that we're going to go through our share of sufferings as well. And then it talks about the way that Jesus conducted himself when he suffered. It says that in his sufferings, verse 22, he did no sin, neither was there guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled or insulted by others, he reviled not again, he didn't return it with insults, And when he uh, suffered, he threatened not, but rather what he did do is that he committed himself to him that judges righteously. And so he put himself completely into the hand of the Father in order for the Father to work things out on his behalf in the proper way, the way that God saw fit for it to work out for him in the midst of those circumstances. Who then, it goes on to say in verse 24, his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. In other words, that all of the sin that was hurled upon him through the revilings and the insults and the threats, he absorbed it in and of himself. He didn't deflect it. He didn't reflect it back upon them, but rather he took all of the sufferings and he allowed it to come into him without any resistance to it. He gave himself to it, if you would. Being, uh, he did it on the tree that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. That is, that him enduring those sufferings produced a positive outcome for everyone else. And then the last verse, he says, For you were as sheep going astray, but are now returned to the shepherd and the bishop of your souls. Just a word basically showing the, the, um, the reliable hand in whom we place our lives. That when we commit ourselves to him in the midst of our sufferings, our lives are in good hands. He knows what he's doing. He's able to shepherd us through those circumstances, and he's able to officiate and, and, and work out the outcomes in our lives. And so we can trust him even though we're suffering. And so that's the context now as we come into chapter 3 when he says, likewise. In other words, in the same manner that Jesus conducted himself in suffering at the hands of others, now likewise we're to do the same things. Where? First of all, in our marriages. And he begins with the wives in verse 1. So he says, likewise, or in like manner, you wives, now he's going to have six verses uh, for the wives and only one verse for the husbands. But don't worry, he's an equal opportunity instructor and he says as much to the men in one verse as he does to the women in six, he just knows the difference between men and women. And he knows that you need six verses to tell the women and you only need one verse to tell the men. Because with men, it's just one word. You're going to see. It just goes boom, boom, boom. And that's us. We go, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. I ask my wife. I say, what time do we have to leave? 
And I just want 6.30. Just one word. It's enough. You know, I never get one word. I said, well, I'm going to go here, and then this is going to happen at this time. And wait, no, no, no. What time? What time do I have to be there? You're giving me too much. I'm going to drop it all, you know, the whole thing. But to the wives, sorry, that was a rant, wasn't it? (laughs) He says, be in subjection to your own husband's that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the lifestyle of the wives. And so the first thing that he says now to the women concerning uh, how how women or wives are to conduct themselves in the marriage relationship in the Lord is that they are to be in subjection or in submission, uh, willingly in, in a position of submission to their husband's leadership. Now, the, the word in the Greek that Peter uses for subjection, the, the literal definition of it is a willful, respectful, committed allegiance to his leadership of the house of the marriage and of the family affairs. That that's what Peter is basically uh, giving to the wife in terms of God, her God-given role in a Christian marriage, is that she's to be in subjection, first and foremost, unto her husband. Now, when, when you even say those words, there's a little bit of an offense. I mean, it's so contrary, uh, first of all, to human nature and, and to uh, what we, you know, we, we kind of don't like that. You know, no, nobody likes to think of, of, of life in terms of being submitted or being in subjection to somebody else, you know. And so it grates against us. It's also uh, contrary to our society. Sometimes it's uh, in, in contrast to our emotional or, or our intellectual intelligence. You know, when we think about the dynamics of our married lives uh, and we just think about, you know, the, you know just the, the IQ uh, uh, when you put me versus my wife. And sometimes you just stack our gifts next to each other. And sometimes it would make so much more sense if she was the leader of the home. You know, she's there more often. She's in, uh, she's in it more. She's more intimately attached to things. And you would think that, you know, that, that the, the conventional wisdom would, uh, would dictate that she would be the leader of the home. But God doesn't want it that way. That's not the way that He's ordained it in His order and in His, uh, way of, of, of shaping things. He has called the wives to be in submission. Now, another reason why that grates against us is because, uh, in many places, the word submission has become synonymous with domination. And it's important that we understand that in the mind and in the heart of God, uh, the two things are, are, are nowhere even in the same ballpark. That when God talks about submission, he's never talking about it divorced from affection. It, it is completely with God an issue of role uh, and, and, and order and function and never a, 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 a thing of domination or of power or of authority in the human sense. And in the moment that we divorce um, the thought of affection from submission, we've lost the God-given significance of what uh, submission is to be all about. But nevertheless, it's the will of God and it's order for the home and it's a vital component to make marriage and family uh, operate in the whole of society. And so Peter uh, exhorts the wives. He says that they're to be in subjection to their own husbands. And then he says, he, here's why. He says that, here's why, that is a reason word. If any obey not the word, that they also may without the word be won by the conversation or the lifestyle of the wives. Now, what Peter is saying to us here essentially is that there's going to be times that the hard-headed stubbornness of the male psyche is going to walk in disobedience to the word of God. Now, that can happen in a non-Christian uh, environment very absolutely. And I think that's the, the highest context of which Peter is talking here. Is when you have a wife or a woman who's a believer and her husband is an unbeliever. He's not saved yet. And, and in that instance, Peter is saying to the wife, remain in that position of subjection. And the reason is that even if he's not obedient to the word of God, it's possible that through your lifestyle and through your example, that he might be one to a conviction in the things of God based upon what he sees, observes, and receives from you as his believing wife. One of my favorite verses in the New Testament is uh, Luke chapter 7, verse 35. It's words that Jesus spoke after having kind of a debate, a contentious debate with the Pharisees of his day. 
And they were accusing him of being a wine-bibber, of being a glutton, of being liberal in his behaviors and the things that he allowed. And Jesus basically turned it back on them and he said, well, what is it exactly that you're looking for in a spiritual leader? He said, because John the Baptist came before me and he was a man who fasted and he was a man of, uh, of somberness and a man of isolation and a man of prayer. He was more monastic than I am and you rejected him. And now I come and I, I'm more outward. I eat, I drink, I enjoy life. I'm more extroverted than John the Baptist was. I'm a different picture of things than he was. And yet you reject me. And he says, you, you, you wouldn't know, uh, you know, divine majesty if it hit you in the face. You're going to just reject everything. And then Jesus said these words, Luke 7:35. He said, but wisdom is justified of her children. And you say, well, what in the world does Jesus mean by that? What he means by that is that when we live our lives according to the wisdom of God, the wisdom of God is going to be justified by the outcome of our lives. In other words, if we do things God's way, God's ways are going to be magnified because it's going to be seen that they produce a good outcome. We're obedient to him. There's blessing in our lives. And so people look at us and they say, wow, that's right. What they're doing with their life, they must be doing something right because good things are happening in their life. And so what Peter essentially is saying to the wife in this instance is he's saying that you're to remain in subjection to your husband, be obedient to the word of God because wisdom will be justified by her children. And as they look at your life and observe your, as he goes on to say, then, you, you know, that your lifestyle, it says in verse 2, it says, while they behold your chaste lifestyle, that is the cleanness of your life, coupled with fear. And the word fear there is respect or submission. He's going back to what he initially told the wives that they're supposed to do. Now, there's a world of difference between a verbal witness and a beholding witness. A verbal witness is when I verbally bring the gospel to someone with my words. Or I verbally tell somebody that they need to get right with God. That's a verbal witness. But I don't know if you've experienced this, but a lot of people are not open and willing to receive a verbal witness. Most of the time, or some of the time. But when, when people aren't willing to receive a verbal witness, what they will always receive is a beholding witness. What's a beholding witness? A beholding witness is when we live the Christian life in the presence of an unbeliever and allow them to let the witness in themselves. When someone is beholding our lives, we're being a witness, but that witness is being in, allowed into them as they open the gate. It's not us trying to force it in through the ear gate that isn't willing to be opened, but it's them opening the eye gate and watching our lives when we don't know that we're being observed and watched. I remember this as an unbeliever. When people tried to share the gospel with me, I would immediately put up a wall because I had a preconceived notion and a prejudice concerning the gospel in the Christian faith. I thought I already knew what it was. And so when people tried to share it with me, I would immediately label who they were and what they were saying based upon what I thought it was, and I would shut them down. But here's what I would always do. I would make a mental check mark in my mind that this person is a believer, and I would begin to watch their life. I would listen to the things that they said when no one else was looking or no one else was uh, knew, knew that they were watching. I'd watch the things that they did. I'd watch for the subtle things. I didn't even realize that I was doing this, but what I was doing is I was beholding their lifestyle. And I was allowing their lifestyle to rewrite my impression of the Christian faith. And what Peter is saying to the believing wife, and it really applies across the board of Christendom, is that the way we live our lives as those that profess Christ is a louder witness and more effectual in winning people to Christ than the things that we say with our mouths. And part of the effect and authority that a believing wife has in a marital relationship is that through her clean lifestyle, coupled with her submission and allowing her man to lead, that's a powerful witness and tool in the hand of God to bring an unbelieving man unto salvation. And so God says it's essential 
in Christian family and in Christian marriage that a woman understand and take this role of submission, even though it might be against uh, her intelligence or against uh, her nature or against what she wants to do because it's effective in the life uh, of a child of God. There There are some things in this life that only work because God makes them work. And you might be sitting here tonight and you might be thinking, if, if, if you knew the dynamics of my home and if you knew the dynamics of my marriage and if you knew my husband, then you would never tell me to submit. This might apply to every other Christian woman or every other woman on the planet, but this very absolutely does not apply in my home. If I let my husband lead... <laughs> you don't want to see what my house would look like. I wear the pants. It's been that way as long as we've been married, and it's going to be that way until we're in the grave, and our house cannot function any other way. Now, in the natural realm, in the intellectual mind of human belief, that might be true. But when you bring God into the equation, God can make things work that wouldn't work on the natural plane and that couldn't work any other way. When Moses erected the serpent, the brass serpent in the wilderness, and he said, if anyone's been bitten by one of those venomous snakes, just look at that brass serpent and you'll be healed. That was ridiculous. There's nothing scientific, medical, or healing about that at all. But it worked. You know why it worked? Because God said to do it, and when they did it, God made it work. Because God has the power to do that. When a man with a withered hand, that there's no physiological way that that hand could be healed... But when Jesus looks at that man and says, stretch out your hand, and he now has the choice of whether or not he's going to justify an excuse not to do it, or if he's going to take God at his word and obey it. But when he stretches forth his hand to obey, it works. Why? Because God said to do it. And if God says to do it, his commandments become his enablements. When Peter was bidden to walk on water, that's unscientific, it's impossible, it can't happen. 99 times out of 99, you're going to sink if you try to do it. Not if God tells you to do it. Because when God tells us to do something, then our obedience makes him a slave to his word. And when he says that he's able to make something work because we obey, our obedience releases his power to make something supernatural happen in our lives. And so God says to a Christian woman, that that's the place where he's going to work in that marriage and where he's going to make himself strong on behalf of the man who otherwise would be an unbeliever, who otherwise would be making uh, big errors with his life. And so he says, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. Then he talks to them about their uh, their adornment. He says in verse 3, Who's adorning? Let it not be that outward adorning or uh, decorating or ornamenting of the braiding of the hair or the wearing of gold, that is jewelry, or the putting on of apparel, but rather let it be the hidden man or the secret character of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. Now, what Peter is not saying here is that, there, that, that it is sin in some way uh, to, to pay attention to or adorn yourself in some manner of outward beauty. He's not condemning the braiding of hair, the wearing of jewelry, or the wearing of fine clothes. All of those things are allowable and they have their expression, and they're even beautiful and to be appreciated. But what he is saying here is that the adorning of our beauty, or the, 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 the adorning or the beauty of a Christian woman, is not to be exclusively or to be rooted in what her outward appearance says that she is. But rather, a Christian woman is ornamented by the beauty that roots or stems from within. That is, from Christ within the life. That the true beauty and value of a godly woman isn't in what she looks like outwardly, but rather who she is inwardly. And what she looks like outwardly is just simply an expression of what's going on inside the heart. You can make anything look good on the outside. But for something to be pure and beautiful on the inside, something has to be pure and beautiful on the inside. And what Peter is saying here is that the concentration of our character, Christian woman, Christian women, is to be on that which is on the inside, 
That if our outward beauty is all we have in terms of beautiful, then we are of most all, or of all most ugly. But what he calls us to be is Christ-like on the inside and then let that reflect itself in our outward attractiveness. Now in a moment he's going to talk about Sarah, the wife of Abraham. And the holy women of old, we think of Rebecca, and we think of Esther, and we think of Abigail, and we think of uh, those women that are held before us as, you know, trophies of God's grace. And every one of them bears both. They're beautiful on the inside. They had the character of Christ and the ornament of, of beauty on the inside. But it was also then reflected on the outside. And what I have found, and this is true for men and women, is that whatever we are on the inside will ultimately one day manifest itself on the outside. And if we're beautiful on the inside, then there's going to be an outward reflection in us. That's why Sarah, when she was 70 years old, was taken into the harem of the Pharaoh. As soon as she came into Egypt, all eyes were on her. It happened again when she was in her 80s. She maintained her outward beauty. Why? Because she was beautiful on the inside. It was from the inside. On the contrary... If you're ugly on the inside, there's no character of Christ at all. And the total value of your womanhood is in your outward appearance. Eventually, what is on the inside will catch up with what is on the outside. I remember when I used to work in the city and, you know, I was often by myself and I worked on construction crews. And I would see these guys and hear them and they would, you know, begin to howl and whistle and, you know, when, when, when an attractive woman would be walking down the sidewalk. And I didn't have to look. I knew what they were doing. You know, I knew what they were. Or you'd see like a group of them, you know, standing around a, someone's cell phone and, and looking. You didn't have to wonder and say, I wonder what they're looking at. It must be a really nice house or something. You know, like you knew what they were doing. It was, it was quite fairly obvious. And whenever someone would, you know, say, hey, look, 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 I wouldn't even have to look, but I always had a, a phrase that I would use every time. I would just say, deceptive rapper. That's what it is. It's a deceptive rapper. It can look good on the outside, but if it doesn't have the value of something pure on the inside, it's only a matter of time before that beauty fades. It's not real. It's not lasting. It's not true. And what Peter says here, don't let your adorning simply be what is on the outside, but let it be what's on the inside, what is incorruptible, even the ornament of a meek, meek means self-controlled, and quiet, that means peaceful spirit. And that is someone who's at rest in the Lord. Someone who finds their life, they find their value, they find their contentment, they find their peace, their satisfaction, their fulfillment, their completion, all of their affection in the person of Christ first and ultimately Christ alone. And that person is going to be a beautiful person that does that. And that's why it's called a great price. And then the example in verse 5, for after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves being in subjection unto their own husbands. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham calling him Lord. Reference to Genesis 18, uh, verse 12, where there she refers to him in that way. And he says, whose daughters you are as long as you do well and are not afraid with any amazement. Just kind of a phrase that means that you don't quit when things get heavy and when things get tough. So he uses Sarah now as an example of this. And I find it a remarkable example, and here's why. Because there were times when Abraham, who was a believer, by the way, made some extremely foolish moves. I just got a loud yup from a female voice somewhere here. You know, he made some extremely foolish moves. When there was a famine in the land that God told him to, to, to abide in and to stay in. He made a decision that they were going to move out of the land and they would go to Egypt where they would, would be provided for until the famine passed. Egypt always fertile because of the, the Nile Delta that was there. And so Abraham told Sarah to lie and to say that she was his sister so that he wouldn't be killed and then she would be taken. And so instead she was just taken and he was left alive. You know, So now Sarah is in the harem of the Pharaoh and Abraham's on the outside wondering, how am I going to get my wife out of there? And he made this huge mess of things by trying to propagate this lie. And now Sarah's basically 
at the disposal of the Pharaoh. I mean, he just subjected her to great danger. It was awful. And in one moment, she would have left him in today's world for it, for what he did. And all of us would say she should, you know, for, for it all. But she didn't. She put her hand, her, her life in the hand of God and she said, well, God, this is somehow you're in this and I believe you're going to bring it to pass. Somehow you're going to do it. And he did it. God brought them out of it. And Abraham, well, he learned the lesson even though he repeated the failure later on in his life. But God taught him through it and Sarah is magnified for the way that she dealt with it and that she allowed God to work in Abraham to bring about the best uh, outcome for her. And so Peter talks to the wives in these things and he says, submission, cleanliness, chastity, with respect and fear, putting your hands on the life of God, beauty on the inward, not on the outward, and then trust God with the outcomes of how things go with your husband and with your family. Now he's going to talk to the men in verse 7. He says, likewise, and he begins it the same way, pointing right back to Jesus' example at the end of chapter 2. He says, likewise, you husbands dwell with them according to knowledge. Now the first thing that he tells them is these men, and what we're to be as men now, as Christian husbands, and the way that we're to navigate marriage issues is that we're to dwell with our wives. Now, there's two possible words that Peter could use to say this, to dwell with. The first is para, like where we get the word parallel or parallelogram. You know, it basically means alongside. And it's simply just a, a, a term that denotes geography or location, that we're walking alongside each other. That's not the word that he uses. The word that Peter uses when he says to dwell with the wives is the word, I love it, it's sunokio. It's really fun to say, you know. But what it literally means is that it's that, that there's a, a, a dwelling alongside. And that means that there's a togetherness that supersedes location. And that is that there isn't a detachment within the marriage relationship. Well, we dwell in the same house. Well, that's all that the Bible says. The Bible says that I'm to dwell with you. And so we'll stay in the same house. We'll sleep in different rooms. We won't talk to each other, you know, and we'll get through this thing. And someday when we're 70, we'll look back and we say that we made it, you know, and we're obedient to God because he said dwell together. You know, no, 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 that's not the idea. The idea is that there's a sharing of the life. The idea is that there's communion between the husband and the wife. And what Peter is saying is that the man is the driver of that. That it's our responsibility, men, and our love for our wives, that we're to dwell with them. That there's a communion, that there's a unity, and that's upon us. But he takes it one step further. The second thing, not only are we to dwell with them, but he also says that we're to dwell with them according to knowledge. And that is now not, not, not kind of a flippant thing or that we're just supposed to dwell with them according to fact, but the word again that he uses here is a fascinating one. Again, I'm going to give you the Greek. It's not because I speak Greek. It's because it means something. But the word is katagnosis. And what it means is thoroughly knowing or a thorough knowledge of. And the reason why that's significant is because it's the exact same language that's used concerning the level of intimacy that we have with the Holy Spirit of God when he comes into our life. Jesus said to his disciples that when I am resurrected, the Holy Spirit who now dwells with you alongside will one day be in you, inside of you. And the word that he uses there is epi or gnosko, or the thorough indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so when the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, it brings us into a relationship with God that is a level of intimacy that crosses the line of mere companionship. We're not just companions of God, we're intimate with God. We're giving him access to our lives, wherein now he is so thoroughly involved and intimately aware of who I am that he searches me out and he knows me. Like David said in Psalm 139. He says, you've searched me and known me. You've tried my heart. You've seen my ways. You know everything about me, when I'm going to lay down, when I'm going to rise up. You discern and perceive my thoughts from afar off. You know me so well, God, that it's like your thoughts towards me are more in number than the sand that's on the seashore. That's the relationship that we have with God. And what God is saying to the men is that that's the way that you're supposed to know your wife. 
That it isn't that you're just supposed to know facts about her. Well, I know where she's from. I know how old she is. I have her social security number memorized. I have to write the thing so many times. I know what her dress size is, or I know what her shoe size is, or how tall, or where she came from, or what. No, 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 that's not the idea. Those are facts. You can know that about a person by reading of them in a book. But when he talks about the katagonosis, or dwelling with them according to knowledge, is that we're to know our wives so well that there's a level of intimacy that, that, that no one else could ever have with them in the way that, that we do. That we know the way they think. We know the way that they tick. Now, here's the amazing thing. That's so hard. Because God's funny. He's got an amazing sense of humor. You know, for a woman to know a man, right? For my wife to know me, it's extremely simple. I'm so easy. I have like one, two, or three switches. It's just like tick, 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 tick. And and, and like, I'm so pliable, so movable. Woman, uh uh-uh. It doesn't work that way. I have an illustration. (laughs) That's why he doesn't tell the wives dwell with them according to knowledge. Because they know that it's easy, you know. But But with the woman, it's different. Because now God has given to us something that we have to figure out. And here's the remarkable thing. Is that as much as all of us look different, different fingerprint, right, different personalities, all those switchboards are different. So that means if I figure out the way mine works, I can't even help you. (laughs) You have to go to God and say, Lord, you've called me into this relationship. You've called me to lead. You've given me this amazing, incredible responsibility that I'm to lead and govern my home, and you've put her in the vulnerable place of submitting to me, and you've given me the task of knowing her, and I don't understand anything from gauging the way I am, because she's so completely different from me. And God says, okay, now you're starting to get it. And, and that's what it means in, a, in, in Ecclesiastes 4, when it says that a threefold cord is not quickly broken. If two are together, you know, the, the, you have heat. You can get so far. But when there's a threefold cord, and now I bring God into the relationship, and I say, God, as a husband, empower me and teach me to know my wife. To be so intimately aware of who she is, and to love her at that level. God, I can't do it without you. And God says, good. Let's do this. I know her. I'm good with these dials. I can figure it out. So dwell with them according to knowledge. Get inside. And then he says, thirdly to the men, giving honor Unto the wife. The honor, or when the Bible speaks of honor and it attaches it to a human life, it's talking about their personal and their unique value. God has given to every human soul its own unique and individual value. We all have talents, we have gifts, we have callings, we have affections and graces, we have things that move us, our strings are pulled by certain things. I mean, that's our honor. The the the, um, the affections and hobbies or the things that we build and do with our lives, the things that we are, the essence of our being, the value and substance of the soul, that's our honor. And what Peter is telling us as husbands that we're supposed to do for our wives is that we're to breathe life into their honor. That we're to enable them and lift them up to thrive and to flourish. Rather than pushing them down and squashing them and bringing them into subjection in order that we might prop ourselves and that they might beautify us, we're to breathe life into what they are. We're to elevate and lift them, enabling them in order to thrive in their environment and in their world, giving honor unto the wife as unto, he then says, the weaker vessel. Now, the word weaker vessel there does not mean that she is in any way inferior, either in strength or in intellect or in any other thing. What it does mean, and is absolutely true, is that she is more sensitive, a thinner glass, if you would. I have this um, mug. It's awesome. It's a double-walled travel coffee mug, but it's made out of ceramic, not steel. And I just so much 
prefer hot coffee and ceramic than steel. I know that's silly, but it, it is what it is, you know. But it is the most delicate cup anybody has ever seen. If it falls over in the sink, it breaks. needs to be replaced. If it gets touched the wrong way or bumped, it breaks. It is tender. That's the idea. Other mugs, goblets, things, you break them, you drop them on the floor, you can't kill them, you know. But, but, but a female is so incredibly sensitive and they can be wounded so very easily. And men, we've got to be aware of it. I know that, that for me, right? Like you can, you can, you can make fun of me and yeah, it, you know, I feel it, whatever, it hurts, but then I forget. You know, you can tease me, you can do all these things and we can laugh it off and I can give it back to you and the whole thing. But I know that, you know, with my wife, I can't do that. Like even like the coarse jesting, the little things, the little words, Like, it does something to her that it doesn't do to me. And I need to remember that as a man, that she's a more sensitive vessel. She's a weaker vessel in that uh, aspect. That's the way that God made her, and I've got to respect that. The other application of this, this weaker vessel thing, is that because God has called her to be in submission or in subjection to me, she has willingly made herself vulnerable to my leadership. And that's a that's a sensitive position for her to be in. It's hard for her maybe to be in that position sometimes. But out of her obedience to God, she has chosen to take that position. And I'm to honor that position and not to exploit it. I need to give honor unto her as unto the weaker vessel. And then why? As being heirs together of the grace of life. He says, listen, whatever blessing God has bestowed upon you, man, he has bestowed on yous, plural, is that you're inheritors or heirs of the grace of life together. And so her well-being, her spiritual, emotional health and maturity is your spiritual well-being and health and maturity. And so it's in your best interest, man, to make sure that your wife is spiritually sound, spiritually at ease, spiritually in a place of rest where your leadership is trusted and where she's confident in your leading over her life because you're heirs together of the grace of life. And then finally, that your prayers be not hindered. Now, how many of you have experienced this before? Wherein you know things aren't right between you and your wife. And when you go and try to seek God, there's a steel wall between your prayer and his ear. It's absolutely the fact. God says, listen, If things aren't right between you and your wife, things aren't going to be right between you and me. If it ain't right on the horizontal, it ain't right on the vertical. And so in marriage especially, it is so vital and so important, men, that in our place of responsibility and leadership, that we treat our wives the way that God calls us to treat our wives. We are living stones. The Bible says that we're living stones. And God uses our marriage relationships to shape us. He uses the things that are difficult. He uses our differences, the differences just between men and women, not to mention our personalities. He uses the conflicts. He uses the strength of our will and and the obstinance of one or the other in certain circumstances and instances. He uses all of those things to shape us and to make us more Christ-like. He's using the marital conflicts and difficulties to make us what we're supposed to be. And what he calls us to do is to follow the example of Christ in our marriages. We're to endure marital difficulties without sin, without reviling, without guile, without threatening, committing ourselves into the hand of him that judges righteously and knowing that he's able as the shepherd and bishop of our souls to work things out. And it works because we trust him. And so our faith in him will bring uh, light and life to our human relationships uh, in that. We're going to close there tonight. We're supposed to get through the chapter, but I'm having mercy on you um, (laughs) and me. But as Mike comes up and, and Joe tonight to close us in song, there is a greater application to this um to this concept of Christian marriage than simply the, the nuts and bolts of how we're to behave and how we are to conduct ourselves. In Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul is talking and giving his take on Christian marriage. And he says uh, to, to the church 
there, um, Ephesians 5.25, he says, Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. That he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it, that is the church, should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loves his wife loves himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Now, the greater application of what Peter says to us in his letter here concerns our relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ. It amazes me when I consider that the church is called in the scripture the bride of Christ and that he is called our bridegroom. And when I look at marriage in a physical sense as a reflection or a paradigm or a model of the relationship that we have with Christ. It gives me great insight and understanding as to what it is that he expects when he looks at me. Because when I consider it in that context, I become a bride. I'm part of the bride of Christ. And so what does Jesus expect or what does Jesus ask of me? He asks that I be in submission and in subjection to his word. He asks that I would trust his leadership. He asks that I would respect the things that he says and that I would live my, my life in a chaste or a clean way and in the fear of God so that when people look at my life, wisdom is justified of her children. That's what he asks of me as the bride of Christ, that I be a reflection of that to a lost and a dying world. He also asks of me as a Christian. This isn't just as a, as a wife or a man, but as a Christian. He asks me that the beauty of my life be what comes out from the inside and not just what people see on the outside. He doesn't want my Christianity or my Christian expression just to be on the outside. Well, the things that I say, well, I say, praise the Lord. I carry a Bible around with me and I wear a T-shirt that has a slogan. And I know how to plaster on a smile on Sunday mornings. And I know how to hide my questionable behaviors in such a way that no one else sees it. That's all outward. That's looking the part, but it's not letting him into the life that the beauty be from on the inside. And so what he asks of me as my husband is that he asks of me that those things be pure, that I allow him into my heart. That's what he wants from me. Now, on the other side of that, If he's the bridegroom and if he's the husband, then what does this tell me about his relationship with me? It tells me that his will and desire for my life is that he wants to dwell with me. Is that I am not to him some valueless name that exists somewhere on this planet in isolation waiting for the time that he might get around to helping me. But that he so cherishes me that he actually wants to fellowship with me. That what he thinks about in his spare time is sitting alone with me and just communing with me. That that's of value to him. He wants to dwell with me. That his desire for my life is that he would know me, that I'd let him into the deepest place of my heart and that there would be communion there, that the two would become one, that there'd be an apigonosis, a katagonosis, a thorough knowledge that he wants to know me in that way. That's his will and his desire for my life. That he wants to give honor unto me in the sense that he wants to take what he has put into my life and he wants to breathe life into it. He wants to beautify it and develop it and enable it and cause it to thrive and to flourish and to grow. That he recognizes and understands my weaknesses. He doesn't exploit them. He doesn't conquer them. He doesn't capitalize on them and use them in a way that he can dominate my life. But he knows what my weaknesses are And he covers me in those things. He doesn't break them down, but he builds them up. And he looks at me as a co-heir with him. That me and Jesus, you and Jesus, that we're heirs together of the grace of life. That the two have been made one. 
And like Paul said to the Ephesians in chapter 1, he said, oh, Paul said this to the church, he said, oh, that you would know what is the glory of his inheritance in the saints. The glory of the inheritance of his life in us. That's what we're waiting for that day. So that's our relationship with him. It's beautiful. What an amazing expression. What an amazing God that we serve. Father, we thank you tonight, Lord, as we close out considering these things, looking at your love and your affection and your care for us. We thank you, Lord, that you are this way, that you're our great bridegroom. And Father, as we consider, Lord, tonight this so complicated thing of human marriage that you've given to us, and Lord, as we feel so often the the difficulties and the strains, Lord, that it can bring to us and the pain that it can cause and the damage that we can do to one another with our words and with our actions and the things that that we, we do or allow. Father, we ask tonight, Lord, that you, by your supernatural grace, that you would help us, Lord, to set things in order in our homes. Father, I pray for us as men that you would give us the grace to know our wives, to love our wives like Christ loved the church. Oh, Lord, that you would teach us the secret of a woman and the beauty of what it is to love a woman and to be completed by one. Father, I pray for the wives in here tonight, Lord, that where adjustments need to be made or could be made, that you would help, Lord. And I pray tonight, Lord, if there are any marriages here, if there are any couples, Lord, where there's, where there's glass embedded in the flesh, wounds, Father, that from so long ago haven't healed, or secret things, Father, under the surface, or just complications that seem so confusing and so perplexing that they they almost could never be ironed out on this side of heaven. Lord, I pray that that wouldn't be so, but that by the power of your Holy Spirit, by, by your miraculous touch and the life that you give alone, Father, that you would heal those relationships, that they could again bear the reflection and beauty of Christ in the church. Father, that you would take heaviness in homes and replace it with joy. And so we ask you, Lord, for these things tonight, that your word would be your enablement in our lives and in our homes. And I pray tonight, Lord, for any here that are single, for those that are seeking a spouse, for those that are yet unmarried, for those that maybe are divorced, those that have been wounded and violated. Father, I pray that you would meet each individual need as only you can, that you would bring preparation to the one who waits, that you would bring restoration and healing to the one who's been violated and that you would bring a future and a hope to each, Lord. We thank you that you've called us to peace. You're a healing God. You're a gracious God. And we put our trust in you tonight. We also pray, Lord, for any circumstances that exist in the homes where there is just a need for supernatural wisdom and guidance. We ask tonight that you would prepare that and provide it. So thank you, Lord, in advance for what you're doing. And we look to you, Lord. We put our trust in you for these things. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.